God, it's one thing, oh, hello. It's one thing to sing those words. It is completely another thing to really believe them and hang on to them when times are tough. God, I want to just pray for us today, especially for those who find themselves in tough times and a winter season of life. Pray that we would be able to truly believe that you are faithful, that you do go before us, that you are watching our back, and the God of angel armies will never, ever leave us. Would you help us to take these truths we believe and really live into them and believe them and trust them and sing in the storm? Because we do. Hold on to you. Pray this in your name. Amen. A few months ago, we started this uh, journey that uh, we call Prayer on the Journey, part of our prayer focus. This third prayer series we've done this year is in what we call the Pilgrim Psalms. The Pilgrim Psalms is a smaller collection within the big book of Psalms in the Old Testament, 15 songs or prayers that we believe were sung by pilgrims as they journeyed up from wherever they lived in the land of Israel, they journeyed up to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feasts um, as a nation. And these seem to be the psalms or the songs that they would sing together, the prayers that they would pray together as they all journeyed together. And so we've been on this journey with them these last few months going through these particular psalms or these particular prayers. And as we've gone through them, they hit the highs and lows in the different seasons of life and give words and expressions and prayers to us in different seasons that we're going to, the good times and the hard times, and we're We've got through 12 of them, and we're down to the last three for these next three Sundays, which is the line there. So. And these three psalms in particular, kind of, they bring us to the city of Jerusalem. It's almost as though these different uh, pilgrim psalms have been the songs that they have sung as they've been on the journey on the road, but these last three seem to suggest that they are now arriving at Jerusalem. As we're going to see this psalm we're on today, Psalm 132, it's as though they're walking up to and into the city, and those final two that we're going to look at in the next couple of Sundays seem to be in Jerusalem, worshipping at God's temple and celebrating who it is. So there's a slight and subtle change here in the way these final three psalms work compared to the others. This morning, then, we're in Psalm 132. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to either open that, if it's a paged Bible, or uh, turn your phone on, if you haven't done that already. Get off the rugby report for a minute and just switch over to the Bible app and um, pull up Psalm 132. And what you'll notice, as soon as you either get it on your phone or open your, your paper Bible and look at it, you'll notice that this psalm is longer than the others. I think one of the reasons the Pilgrim Psalms have been so popular through the years is that most of them are really short. Um, short attention spans aren't just part of our generation. I think God's people have been like that for a long time. And so one of the cool things about all of these Psalms is that they're pretty much short. Some of them are only three verses long, like next week's Psalm 133. There's only three verses in it. Um, and some of the others have been like that. The longest of these Psalms has been eight verses uh, until we come to this one. And this one, if you just scroll down and have a look, is 18 verses long. It is more than double the length of any of the other pilgrim psalms that we're looking at. And it, 
In one way, that actually makes this one one of the harder ones to do, the sheer length of it, because it's more than twice as long as any of the others. It makes it a little bit, uh, little bit difficult just to kind of get into and enjoy, because the others have all been so short. There's a couple of other reasons that make this psalm one of the harder ones to actually get our minds around as well. As we're going to see, it is steeped in the history of Israel. So if you don't know the history, if you don't know the story behind this psalm, which we're going to explain today, but if you don't know that, it makes it a little bit ambiguous. It's a little bit like, what the heck is going on here? And the, other, the third difficulty with it, not only its length and it's kind of the background to it, but the third difficulty with it is it's just its relevancy. I think some of the Psalms that we've been looking at, you can immediately see the crossover. Like last week, Roland took us through Psalm 131 on humility and pride, and you can immediately just pick up the principles of that psalm and apply it to our lives straight away. Whereas this psalm takes a little bit more work to bridge the gap from their world to us. So I'm, I'm hoping we can construct that bridge today. But because of that, because of its length and because of the historical background to it and because it seems to be a little bit removed from our world today, this psalm's going to take a little bit more work for us to get into. But I hope you'll see it's actually worth it. The way the psalm works is it divides in two parts, two halves, not quite symmetrical, but pretty close. And the first half of the psalm, verses 1 to 10, are the people's prayer to God. So these pilgrims, I want you to use your imagination. A few people here have had the privilege of going to uh, Jerusalem, going to Israel. Daniel, who is just up here, has just come back from Israel with Shimei, and I'm incredibly envious and don't want to look at his photos, but I do want to look at your photos. But I want you to imagine, if you haven't been there, just to use your imagination, imagine going up, you're a pilgrim, you've been traveling for perhaps days to go and celebrate and worship at the temple, and you're now arriving, you've seen your first glimpse of Jerusalem, the capital city where God's temple is, and you're now coming up the road towards one of the gates that you will enter into the city. And then this is what they sing, it's Psalm 132 that they begin to sing, as they come up that final rise, as they come up the final path or road leading into the city. And it's a prayer to God, the first half of this. I have a look. Psalm 132. Let's read it. Psalm, uh, verses 1 to 10. Lord, which is God's name in capital letters there, it's named Yahweh. Yahweh, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to Yahweh. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep in my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for Yahweh, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephratah. It came upon it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, verse 8, Arise, Yahweh, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. You can tell what I mean, can't you? So this is a long psalm, but there's also, it's steeped in some kind of background in the stories of the Old Testament, and you read it and go, yeah, I don't know quite what to do with that. What's immediately obvious is that this is a psalm about David. You pick that up, eh? You know, David's kind of scattered all the way through this psalm, and so it's going back to talk about the life of this incredibly important figure uh, from the Old Testament. Even if you don't know the story of the Bible very well at all, chances are you've heard about this person and this particular story. Uh, David was a shepherd boy, just the youngest son in an ordinary family in the tribe of Judah. 
um, who, for reasons that we don't know, God chose to be anointed the next king of Israel. Israel had their first king on the throne, a guy called King Saul, but King Saul had failed God and disobeyed God numerous times until God ended up rejecting him and saying, I'm sorry, your line is not going to continue. Your, your kids are not going to reign after you. I'm going to find a new king, a man after my own heart. And the prophet Samuel was told to go to the little village of Bethlehem. And there he found the youngest son in this family, a kid really, maybe a teenager by the name of David, and he anointed him to be the next king of Israel. Shortly after that, David went to take food to his brothers, his oldest three brothers who served in the army, who were in a massive campaign against their uh, enemies at this time in their history called the Philistines. And in the valley of Elah, their great champion, a giant by the name of Goliath, came out and challenged the armies of Israel for 40 days, and no one would take up the challenge. And so this freshly anointed teenage kid who was going to be the next king walked into the, into the valley of Elah, and he beat this massive giant. He then became one of the champions of King Saul. He became one of his generals and leading commanders. But over time, King Saul began to realize that this young kid, who was now becoming one of his generals, ended up marrying one of his daughters, was in fact probably the kid who was going to take his throne. And so a whole uh, jealous mood came over King Saul, and he began to plot for ways to kill uh, this young man. He was intent on wiping David out until David ended up having to go on the run, and he became a fugitive, almost an ancient Robin Hood-type figure. He was on the run for perhaps a decade or more in his life. He gathered around him a bunch of ragtag Um, fugitives as well, who kind of became his little army, and they were on the run for their lives for for a decade or more. So while on one hand, he was holding on to this promise that God had said, you're going to be the next king of Israel, he had been anointed by the prophet Samuel himself, it wasn't coming to fruition for many, many years. And he was on the run for his life until finally King Saul was killed in yet another battle with the Philistines. And you would have thought that David would then be immediately crowned king because he was the anointed one, but it didn't happen like that. He was uh, announced as king, proclaimed as king by his own tribe of Judah, but the rest of the tribes of Israel, they went off and anointed the youngest son of King Saul, and this great civil war took place. For the next seven and a half years, David had to fight for the throne that God had promised him. So after perhaps more than a decade on the run, it's almost another whole decade before finally David gets to be proclaimed king by the entire nation of Israel. He then conquers as king um, a city that he had his eye on pretty much in the center of the land, the city of Jerusalem. It had remained unconquered for years and years, for centuries under Israel. And finally, he decided he was going to take that city. It was, um, had been settled by a Canaanite group called the, um, the Jebusites. And he decided he would take them on. And he laid siege to the city. And he captured Jerusalem. And he made Jerusalem his capital city. So finally, after seven and a half years of civil war, of more than a de- after more than a decade of being on the run as a fugitive, finally he was the king of the entire nation, He had conquered the city of Jerusalem, made it his capital city, and settled there. And then he came to a pivotal moment, a key part of his story that lies behind this psalm. The story is told in 2 Samuel 7. It says, when the king was settled, this is David, when he was settled in his palace, 
and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies around him. David said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar in a palace while the ark of God remains in a tent. The ark, of course, is the, the famous ark of the covenant, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was this box uh, that they had constructed way back under Moses' leadership when they had built a portable place of worship for God called the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was this box covered in gold that contained the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and a couple of other items. But the Ark of the Covenant was placed into this tent of worship in the most central part called the Holy of Holies, and the Ark was deemed to be the very presence of God. That's where God dwelt among his people. He dwelt in the Ark inside this tent for centuries. But now David has settled... United Kingdom, capital city, Jerusalem. He's now living in a palace. And he comes and he says to Nathan the prophet, I don't feel right. Here I am living in a luxurious palace. I'm settled in the city. The nation's finally at rest. And God, his ark, it's still in this movable old tent thing that we built centuries ago. The implication is David wants to build God a palace, a permanent temple for him to dwell in. And Nathan the prophet turns around and said, Whatever you've got in mind, O king, do it. Yahweh is with you. We'll come back in a little bit to how Yahweh will respond to that. But that is the background to this psalm. And what Psalm 132 is celebrating, the song that these pilgrims are singing as they come up to Jerusalem, it's celebrating two key moments around this Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. And the first key moment is this decision where David decides he is going to build a permanent home for God's ark. Now, it doesn't tell us in 2 Samuel 7 that David actually made a sacred vow to build this temple, but that's what Psalm 132 tells us. Did you see that in verse 2? He swore an oath to Yahweh. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house. I will not go to my bed. I will allow no sleep or slumber until I find a place for Yahweh. And so what they're singing in this um, song is they enter Jerusalem as they are remembering this decision of David, this vow that he made that he was going to build a temple for God. Now just a pause for a minute. Making a vow is a really dumb thing to do, just saying. With all due respect to David... We shouldn't really make oaths or vows to God because we have no guarantee in our lives that we can fulfill those. If you're going to make a sacred promise, a vow to God, God, if you would do this, if you would come through, if you would open this door for me, then I'm going to do this. I'm guaranteeing I'm going to do this for you, God. It's actually very hard to do that if you're not sovereign over your life and have complete control and know exactly what's going to come. That's why one pastor, James Boyce, writing about this, says, generally speaking, it's unwise to make vows. Because we vow unwisely, often we do it rashly, and we're usually unable to perform what we've promised. But David may not have been wise in this vow, because he vowed more than he could fulfill. See, that's, that's the heart of the psalm. David said, I'm not, I'm not going to settle in my palace, I'm not going to sleep there a night until I've built a temple for God. But then God turns around later and says, actually, David, I don't want you to. You've got too much blood on your hands. I'm going to let your son do it. In fact, Solomon, King Solomon, his son, a few years later, at the dedication of the temple that he built, instead of his dad, Solomon said, my father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
But Yahweh said to my father, David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for me. Nevertheless, you're not the one. It'll be your son. So actually, David probably shouldn't have made a vow. His heart is right. His heart is for God. And wanting to to honor God and give glory to God and do something magnificent for God as an act of worship, but to actually vow that probably wasn't a great move. I remember talking a few years ago, actually, to someone in our church who who came, we'd been talking about this in another context, another sermon, and they came and said to me, I actually made this vow to God that I would never do this thing in my whole lifetime. And now I'm looking at it 10 years down the track going, I don't know if I should have done that. And he was, he was a little bit uh, flummoxed as to what to do now because he'd made the sacred promise to God that he, wouldn't, he, was, he was never going to do that. And now he's looking and saying, man, that was a stupid vow to make. But, it's, but I vowed it. And I was like, you know what? You should, do, you should go to God and say, sorry, that was really dumb. I shouldn't have done that. Can we forget that? Because actually, we don't need to make vows to God. We can make responses to God, to his grace. We can say, Lord, I really want to honor you in doing this and that. But to make a sacred promise that we've got no control over whether or not we'll live long enough to even fulfill it makes no sense. That's why Jesus, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, said, you know, you've heard it said, don't break your oath. But Jesus said, I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just be a person of integrity. Because when you make a vow that in the future you're going to do something, you're assuming you're in control of your future. And you're not. Because you're not God. The only being who can actually make a vow of something in the future is God. Because he's the only one fully in control of that future. But as this psalm celebrates David, while his vow was rash, that's not the point of the psalm, The psalm is celebrating his heart. Celebrating the heart of a man. That he was called um, when when, uh, God told the prophet Samuel to go anoint this person he would show him. He called him a man after God's own heart. And this psalm is celebrating David's character. That he was a man after God's own heart. And in this pivotal moment in Israel's history, he said, I want to build a place, a permanent place of worship for God among his people now that we are settled in this land. And that's what it celebrates. The second key moment that it then celebrates is the arrival of the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And I think this is why they sing this psalm. Because as they, as these pilgrims, these visitors to Jerusalem are coming to worship, and as they come up towards the city gates and walk into the city, they're actually walking on the same pathway that the ark once took. See, back in David's time, they brought the ark of the covenant into the city on one of those roadways, through one of those gates, and now these pilgrims, are, are, they're following, doing the same journey. They're, they're walking the same road. And so they sing the song, and they're remembering their sacred history. They're remembering the story of their forefathers. And it actually remembers, um, in verses 6 to 9, two events 
and they kind of merge it into one. But verse 6 is talking about when they found the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into, into the city of Jerusalem. That's what King David did. And that's the famous story of when David dances before the Ark and celebrates and they bring the Ark into the city of Jerusalem. That's what verse 6 is celebrating. When they actually it almost suggests that they couldn't find the Ark of the Covenant for a while under King Saul's reign. But then they found it in a place called uh, Ja'ar, or Kiriath-Jeraim is, is the, the full name of the place. And they finally find it, and they bring it into Jerusalem, and they celebrate that. But then verses 7, 8, and 9, they are celebrating not David, but Solomon. When Solomon had finally built the temple, and now they, they bring the ark within the city of Jerusalem, now they bring the ark into the temple itself. And they kind of, this psalm kind of merges these two events. David bringing the ark into the city, and then Solomon bringing the ark into the temple itself within the city. But verses 8, 9, and 10 are actually a quote from this prayer. Solomon, when he dedicates this magnificent temple he builds, Solomon prays a beautiful prayer to God. In fact, in the beginning of the prayer, he says, God, you are so infinite. There's no way this little building can house you, as magnificent as it is. The highest heaven can't contain you, O God. But we've built this temple as a place for you to come. And he prays this beautiful prayer. And then at the end of the prayer, this is how the prayer ends in in the version in 2 Chronicles 6. Solomon prays, Now arise, Yahweh God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Yahweh, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. If you've got the psalm open in front of you, just have a look at verse 8. Because verses 8 and 9 are virtually a direct quote of this prayer. What these people are celebrating as they come into Jerusalem is they're celebrating David's heart to build a temple for God. And they're celebrating Solomon's prayer when the ark finally arrived in that temple. And they're celebrating that. They're remembering that as they come to Jerusalem to worship God, they're remembering the time the ark came and David's heart behind that. And then in verse 10, they take this final line from Solomon's prayer. Yahweh God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David your servant. But what they do in Psalm 132, if you notice, is they switch the order of those two lines around. They take the two lines of that last part and they switch it. And it becomes this prayer in verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, which is that last line, do not reject your anointed one. And that really is the pinnacle of this prayer to God that these pilgrims are praying as they arrive in Jerusalem. They're reciting David's oath. They're remembering David's heart for God. And they remember the arrival of the ark in the city just as they arrived and the prayer of Solomon that went with that. And they echo Solomon's prayer at the end there in verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, they pray. Do not reject your anointed one. So let's pause here for a minute. What's going on here? Why are they singing this song? And why are they remembering all this stuff? And what's the significance for us? Why is this really even important? Why is it even part of God's word? The key part of this is verse 1 and verse 10. 
Verse 1 says, Yahweh, remember David and all his self-denial. Verse 10 says, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. You notice what they're asking in this prayer? As they arrive at the city of Jerusalem to worship God once again, they're saying, God, would you remember David? And would you not reject your anointed one? The anointed one was the king. Whichever one of David's servants, was, uh, sons or grandsons or descendants was now ruling, they are praying for that king. And they're saying, God, would you remember David and his heart for you and your promises to him? And would you not reject this king that's currently ruling on the throne? What that suggests is that the background of the psalm and scholars have big disagreements about how to understand it. But I think what it suggests is the background of the psalm is this psalm was composed during one of the lowest times in, his, in Judah's history. After Solomon's death, the whole nation rips in two. There's a northern kingdom of most of the tribes. They're ruled by godless kings who assassinate each other. It's a mess for a couple of hundred years until they go off to captivity. There's a little southern kingdom, mainly the tribe of Judah. They're still ruled by the descendants of David. But it's a mixed bag of good and evil and inconsistent and... It's a mess. And God had made a promise that we're going to see in a minute that David's descendants would continue to rule. But some of them were good and followed God, but some of them were shocking. There were moments in Judah's history, the southern kingdom that existed for three or four hundred years, that were absolutely appalling. There was a queen, a failure, who was the daughter of the infamous Jezebel who married one of the kings of Judah, and when he died and when her son died, she seized the throne. And she annihilated the family of David and almost wiped out the entire bloodline, save for one little baby boy. A couple of hundred years after her, there was another king who ruled, a descendant of David called King Manasseh. He was the longest-serving king, reigned for over 50 years. He was the most wicked one of the lot. And there are these moments through the, the, the story of God's people you're a part of the whole panorama series we did last year through the Bible, it's a sad tale where the pendulum is swinging between good and evil back and forwards. And this psalm seems to have been written during one of the lowest times in their, in their history. That's why it culminates in this prayer in verse 10. God, for the sake of David, don't reject your anointed one. It seems that there was a king on the throne when this psalm is written who was an absolute scumbag, didn't pursue God, and it could have been a whole raft of them. We don't know which one it was. We don't know which era it was. But it seems to have come out of a bleak time where the few pilgrims that were left who still wanted to follow and worship and glorify Yahweh, they are arriving at Jerusalem wanting to worship, grieving that most people don't even care about their God anymore. And they are praying that even though there's a scumbag on the throne, that God won't revoke his promise. That God will still follow through on what he said. One commentator uh, that I've loved on these psalms, Alan Ross, says this psalm may reflect the time of spiritual and political trouble when the promises to David seem to be waning rather than being fulfilled. This prayer called for the fulfillment of those promises. See, the heart of this, if you look back up the top there, 
the heart of this first half of the psalm, this is the people's prayer to God, and essentially they're saying, remember David. God, would you remember David, and would you continue to do what you've promised based on him? And behind that prayer, remember David, is a plea, God, would you remember us? Would you not forget us, God? Even though we're in this bleak time of our history, even though the king right now doesn't care about you and isn't following you, even though most of the people around us are now worshipping idols instead of following you, God, would you please not forget us? Would you please still follow through? See, this is what I call a winter season of life. I think our lives go through different seasons. And if you think about the four seasons of, of our calendar and our annual year, the cycle of, of a year, sometimes it's summer, sometimes it feels like autumn and the change, sometimes our lives can feel like it's a bleak winter, sometimes, like now, it feels like we're in spring. I've loved this past week. We've been on holiday, and I've been in shorts and T-shirt with the boys playing outside, playing football on the lawn of the holiday home we were borrowing it felt like spring was in the air. We were at Hobbiton on Friday, checking out the, uh, the Lord of the Rings site down there and looking out the windows and seeing lambs skipping around and wildflowers starting to grow. And the, it feels like spring is coming. And then you wake up this morning. It feels like spring's coming. Sometimes in our lives, though, it feels like we're in the depths of winter. And this is a psalm that comes out of the depth of winter. This is a psalm that for these people, a small remnant probably of God's people among the whole nation, they're faithfully still coming to worship God. But the king doesn't care. And the majority of the people don't care. And they've turned their back on their God. And it's a horrendous place to be for the small group of people who are still faithful to Yahweh. And they are coming again to worship and to celebrate one of the festivals. And as they arrive in Jerusalem, they, they sing this song. God, remember David. Remember Solomon's prayer that you would be here in this place. God, please don't reject us. Please don't turn your back on us. See, it's in the winter seasons. Those are the times in our lives when we feel like God's forgotten us, isn't it? When life is hard, when relationships in your life have fallen apart, perhaps when a, a marriage has broken apart or a girlfriend or boyfriend has rejected you, when you face financial ruin, when you're looking at a, a health scare that's terrifying as a couple of families in our church are dealing with right now, when you face the death of someone you love, you go through these winter seasons of life and those are the times where you wonder, Is God, are you still there? Do you still care, God? Do you still love us? Please remember your promise to me. And that's what these people are praying. And that brings this psalm very powerfully into our lives. They're crying out to God, God, would you please remember us and please remember your promise? Because it feels like we're in this winter season of life. And that's where I'm really glad that this psalm is the longest pilgrim psalm. Because if it stopped at verse 10, that would be the end, and you'd be left wondering, did God remember? Is he there or not? 
And I'm glad we don't stop at verse 10, but a whole other chunk is added to the psalm. Because in the second half of the psalm, we find God's response to the people's prayer. And where they pray, God, remember David and remember us, God now responds to them in verses 11 to 18 by simply saying, trust me. Trust me. I'm the God who keeps his promises. I'm the God who fulfills what I said I would do. And even if it's the middle of winter in your life, even though you're in a season right now where you're wondering whether I'm there and whether I remember and whether I hear your cries, I am and I do. And I'm the God who will do what I have said I will do. And in the second half of the psalm, God responds to their prayer. And in fact, he does it in a beautiful way. I wonder if you remember doing these at primary school. Remember these? You fold the paper in half. I don't know what you call them. I should have asked Rochelle. Squishy paintings? I don't know. You know, you fold them in half, and then you paint the picture. Maybe it's one half of a butterfly wing or some cool pattern you want to do, and then you fold the other half of the page over, and you, you put it tight, you, you really rub it over it stuff, and then you open it up, and you get this mirror image on one side of what was on that first page. It's exactly how Psalm 132 works. Because what God is going to do, God is going to respond to their prayer. And his response is going to mirror what they prayed. So the three moves they make as they pray, God responds with three mirror moves to their prayer. First of all, they prayed and recited David's oath to God, that David made this vow. He shouldn't have made the vow, but his heart was right to God. Well, in response, God reminds them that he made a vow in return to David. Look at verses 11 and 12 there, if you've got Psalm 132 open. Yahweh swore an oath to David. Just look at back at verse 2. David swore an oath to Yahweh. Now look at verse 11. Yahweh swore an oath to David. See the mirror imaging. A sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then your sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. He's going back to the promise that God made back in that story in 2 Samuel 7, where David had said, I want to build a house for God, and the prophet, Sam, uh, the prophet Nathan had said, go for it. That sounds awesome. That night, God had appeared to Nathan in a dream and said, no, you need to go back to David and tell David, no, I don't want him to build a temple for me. His son can do that. But whereas David wanted to build a house for me, tell him, Nathan, I'm going to build a house for him. And as part of that, this is God's promise. Yahweh declares to you, David, that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, when you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I'll establish his kingdom. Talking about Solomon. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then at the end of this promise, here it is, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And that's what God comes back to. The people as they arrive in Jerusalem, the small remnant of faithful people, in a winter season where no one else cares, where the king is disobeyed and turned away from God, they're praying, God, would you remember David and his heart for you? And God responds, 
guys, would you remember my promise to David? My vows are a lot more trustworthy than he is. And I vowed that I would build a house for him. And one of his descendants would rule forever. And I do what I say. So he responds to their first part of their prayer about the vow. Then they had said, remember the arrival of the ark, God? Remember the prayer of Solomon? And, Dave, and, and God now turns around and he responds to that exact memory. Look at verses 13 to 16. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. That's the, the mountain in Jerusalem that we call the Temple Mount where they built the temple. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, verse 14, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Now what God is doing is he's saying, I will do exactly what Solomon prayed for. See, go back and look at verse 8. Look at Solomon's prayer. Way back when they first built the temple. Arise, Yahweh, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now look at what he says in verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Solomon had prayed, God, would you come and would you live here among your people? And God says, that's exactly what I've done. And this is my resting place forever. Jerusalem will always be at the center of what I am doing. Solomon had prayed, verse 9, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May, may we have good, holy priests. And may your faithful people sing for joy. Well, look at verse 16. I will clothe her priests with salvation. In other words, not all the priests are going to be good, but I'm going to save them. And look at the next line. And her faithful people will forever sing for joy. It's like God saying, I'm going to do everything Solomon asked for, but I'm going to go beyond that. That's what verse 15 is. Verse 15 is an extra thing God says he's going to do that wasn't even asked for. I'm going to bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. In other words, what God is saying is, you're reciting to me Solomon's prayer. Would I come and make this my home among you? Would I dwell among you as your God and you my people? Would I serve you? Absolutely I will. In fact, I'm going to go far beyond what you've asked for. Very first Sunday that Botany Life began, almost 14 years ago, I preached from these verses in Ephesians 3. I love this description of God in that opening line. The one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That's what God's saying in these verses. They're saying, God, do you remember that prayer? Do you remember Solomon prayed when the ark came into the temple and God says, I remember in fact, I'm going to do more than what Solomon asked for. Because I'm the God who does immeasurably more. And then finally, the climactic prayer, as they finally arrived in Jerusalem ready to worship, was God, for the sake of your servant David and the vow you made to him, please don't reject your anointed one, this wicked king on the throne right now. Look at what God promises in response in verses 17 and 18. Here, in this place in Jerusalem, I will make a horn grow for David. A horn was the symbol of kingship. And I will set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. They are praying for this wicked 
descendant of David who is currently on the throne saying, please don't reject him. God comes and says, forget him. I am bringing another descendant, the anointed one which I've capitalized over here. Because in verses 17 and 18, God's talking about one particular descendant of David who is going to rule forever. His kingdom is going to be established forever. And as these people come, a small remnant of faithful followers of God in a winter time in their lives, no one else follows God, and they're coming to God crying out to him, God, would you not reject us? Would you not throw us out because of this wicked king on the throne? And God comes and says, I will not revoke my promise to David. And even though there's a wicked descendant on the throne right now, there is one who is coming, one of the descendants of David, who I will establish forever. He will be my lamp. And that anointed one will be adorned with a radiant crown. God says the answer to your prayer is one who is to come. And that hope is picked up through the rest of the Old Testament. Even as the kings get so bad that God exiles the nation, even though God ends up cursing the final king, Jehoiachin, and saying none of your descendants are going to reign, there is this hope that's still held out, even as the people go into exile and come back again, that there is still one who is to come. One descendant of David is going to reign. And he will one day reign in Jerusalem, the place that God has chosen forever and ever and ever. And that's the hope through the rest of the Old Testament until it finally closes. And then 400 years later, the New Testament opens. And it begins with the angel appearing to a virgin and saying these words, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you'll call him the name Jesus. We'll be celebrating these words in a couple of months, just to scare you, as we celebrate Christmas again. But look at what Gabriel says. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants, forever. His kingdom will never end. The people come to God in a winter season of their lives. It feels, God, like you've forgotten us. We've heard that you made these great promises to David long ago, but it doesn't feel like that. The ruler we've got right now, though descended in blood from David, is nowhere near his spirit for you. God, we're scared you've rejected us, you've rejected him, that your promise is revoked, that it's all over, Rover. And we cry to you as we arrive here to worship. And God responds to them. Trust me. I'm the covenant-keeping God. I'm the God who goes before you. I'm the God who stands behind. I'm the God of angel armies. And I am ever faithful. And that's the key idea of this beautiful psalm. As these pilgrims arrive ready to worship God, 
but in a season of life where they just aren't even sure that God still loves them and God still cares as they go through such a tough time. And God comes to them and reminds them, spring is coming. My promises still hold true. And I am going to do everything that I promised. Nothing will fall short. No promise I must is going to fall away unfulfilled. I am the faithful God and I will do everything. And if you are in a winter season of life, where you are tempted to doubt God's promises, as we all do, God responds in his word. He says, no, I will do what I've promised. I will be the God that I said I'd be. I will be faithful to what I said. And you can trust me. I am faithful. I love C.S. Lewis's beautiful book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Story of four kids who find themselves in Narnia. But they arrive in Narnia in a winter time. Narnia has been taken over by the white witch, and it is an eternal winter. Everything is bleak and cold because that's who she is. And there's this pivotal moment in the book where all of them, the children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the other animals, And even the white witch suddenly realize the snow is beginning to melt. The ice is beginning to crack. There are flowers starting to bloom. There are blossoms on the trees. Spring is coming. The winter must end at some point. Why? Because, as Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is on the move. In that beautiful kids' book, Aslan is the picture of Jesus. Jesus is on the move. And we stand at a pivotal moment in history that these pilgrims never did. We've already seen Aslan move. We know he's already come once to begin his kingdom program to pay for our sins, to die and to rise again, to kick off his plan, to bring all nations into his kingdom. But we are like these pilgrims and that we're still waiting for the king to come again. And it is only when the king comes again, when he sits in Jerusalem and he reigns on David's throne, that is when every promise will come true. And winter will finally be done forever. What God promises in Psalm 132 is that if you're in the winter time now, doubting his promises, just know Aslan's on the move. Spring is coming. And he will do everything that he promised. I'm going to ask if the band would come up here. This is going to lead us in a final song that I asked them to, to pick. It's a song we sing a lot. It's called Sovereign. And it's a, it's a song that declares 
that we trust that God is the sovereign God who faithfully does what he promises and in response we will trust him. And I want to invite you to make this song this morning your prayer. So as the band leads us, if you'd like to stand, you're welcome to stand. If you just want to stay seated, you're welcome to just stay seated. If you want to sing along and make this a prayer, then sing. If you want to just sit quietly and reflect and listen, then just do that. However you want to respond, I'd like to invite you to do that. But I want to invite you to make this song your prayer. Lord, whatever comes my way, I will trust. And especially if right now you are in a winter season in your life, where you're struggling with broken relationships or financial difficulties or health scares or the death of someone you love, whatever it is, I want to invite you to make this your prayer. God, even in the midst of this bleak winter I'm in, I'm trusting you. You're the God who does what he says. Spring is coming. Aslan's on the move and one day he is coming again set up his kingdom and every promise that day is going to come true. So let's just make this our prayer and then our service will be done. But as always, our leaders will be available here at the front if you'd like prayer today. We'd love to pray with you. Let's make this our prayer. Thanks, guys. Mm -hmm.